Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, this is such a wonderful day, a day to proclaim and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for giving us the privilege of being here today, of being able to rehearse the truth of the gospel, not only through the exposition of your word, proclamation of your word, but also through the symbolism and the, um, the demonstration of baptism. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified, that you would help all of us here to understand more clearly the wonders, the glories, the majesty of your grace revealed to us in Jesus Christ in the gospel. And so to that effect, we pray that you bless the preaching of your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Did you know that the federal government has over 16 billion, with a B, billion dollars in unclaimed treasury bonds? Did you know that? Did you know that the state of New York has $10.5 billion in unclaimed funds, unclaimed money, just sitting there? One account I, was, I read online has $1.7 million sitting in it waiting for the person who owns it to come and claim it. Now you say, oh yeah, right. You, this is just something you read online and you've just been goofed and, and someone's pulled your leg. No. This happens because, for various reasons in one scenario would be, money from a person, let's say, Joe Schmo, he wants to, when he dies, give money to you. And so he sets up a trust fund, and the trust fund writes your name down, uh, let's say 20 years ago, and, uh, and so you have a portion of his inheritance when he dies. Well, Joe Schmo dies, the trust fund and the, the directors of the trust, they're looking to make sure that money gets out there. Meanwhile, you have been married, you've changed your name, you live in another state, and guess what? They can't find you. And you have money that's your money, you're entitled to it, it sits in this fund, and it's just waiting unclaimed. Now what do you need to do to claim the money? What do you need to do to actually obtain it? Well, you go to the website, the state controller's office, and you submit a claim. And then obviously you're going to have to verify who you are. You can't just give it to anybody. You can't just walk up and say, hey, I'm claiming to be Joe Schmo, and I want that $1.7 million. Well, it's not going to work that easily. But why don't people go and claim the money that's owed to them? Well, there are numerous reasons. Here's a couple I thought of. Number one, some people, because of unbelief, they say, ah, it's too good to be true. No way. Other people say, I assume, hmm, with the fear element here, uh, there's got to be some strings attached. I'm not getting involved. Other people say, because of concern, that they think, because they're ignorant, they don't even know they have the funds there. They have no clue that it's sitting there waiting on them. Other people, perhaps it's because of the reason of pessimism. They just say, well, there must be a mistake here. And some people say, eh, don't need the money. Can't be bothered. Well, here we are in the 10th chapter of Romans. I hope you have your Bible in front of you. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 1349. 
hope you were looking on your screen, whatever it is that you have to have look at the Word of God, because what's more important than anything I say is what the Word of God says, and we're looking at that this morning in the 10th chapter of Romans. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul explores some reasons why so many of his fellow Jews to whom God sent Jesus the Messiah didn't receive the greatest gift that's ever been offered. They didn't claim it. And here is Jesus described in verse 12 as a person who is abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. What a description about Jesus. He is loaded with incredible spiritual wealth to all who will call upon Him. And here we read in the Gospel that Jesus graciously bestows deliverance from condemnation to those of us who, like the Jews, we along with them, deserve to be condemned because of our sin. And in the Gospel we also receive the offer of the gift of a righteous standing before God, where we can say that we are a person who is now pleasing to God, accepted by Him in His presence. And here is Paul, a Jew, his heart is so heavy for his fellow Jews because they've rejected Jesus the Messiah. Majority of them did. And they remain, in a sense, in the situation of unclaimed riches are available to them that they just, for whatever reason, they're not, they're not pursuing and claiming those, the wonders of the gospel. And so I have in this passage of Scripture, I want to ask, answer three questions that I think Paul deals with in this passage in verses uh, 1 through 13. What prevents so many people from being saved? What prevents them from being saved? Number two, what must they do to be saved? What must anyone do to be saved? And number three, who can be saved? The first one then, talking about what prevents so many people from being saved, how can it be when Paul's thinking now about the gospel, that's the theme of this whole book, the book of Romans is about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God declares in Christ to the world. How can it be that the vast majority of God's chosen people, the, the, the children of Israel, who had the covenants, they had the law, they had the temple, they had the prophets, they had even Jesus the Messiah, how is it that they failed to claim the benefits of Jesus' saving work? And so Paul starts recounting there in verses 1 and following, he, he sort of tries to give some explanation why. The sad fact is that the majority of them operated on faulty knowledge. He uses the word ignorant there a number of times. There's faulty knowledge. In a sense, they didn't have an accurate understanding of God's holiness. That's a problem. People don't feel a, don't sense a need for the riches of Christ and the gospel if you don't really believe or understand the implications of all of the, the amazing uh, truth about God if you, if you sort of minimize His holiness. Because many of them misunderstood the massive implications of God's holy character. And if God is holy, then guess what? We're the opposite of that because we have an unholy character and they just somehow glossed over some of those things. They were zealous for God, that's true. They did a lot of things in their zeal for God, but their efforts to please God were problematic. And the reason why is because God in His holiness, in His just nature, where He cannot 
ignore that which is wrong. He cannot just dismiss evil and people's sin and the breaking of the laws that he has established in his universe and somehow just think, well, nothing's going to be done about it. But God views our righteous deeds, whatever we're offering up to him as somehow the good deeds, he views them as things that are offensive to him. They are of no value to him. They have no uh, appeal to him, no importance to him at all. Why? Because we've never been reconciled to God and those things that have offended him are still standing between us and a holy God. A second thing listed in this text that was a big deal that hindered the, these folks from being saved was their faulty attempts. The faulty attempts to establish their own righteousness by somehow keeping the law. Now, if you're going to try to be righteous before God and your goal is to do that and you're going to try to attain that by doing every single thing in the law, guess what? You're going to fail. And the problem is that none of them, even though they were zealous for God's rules or God's laws, if you will, God's commands, all of them failed to keep God's laws perfectly. And James 2, chapter 2 in James says, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point, that means you then become a guilty sinner. You're a lawbreaker. And so many people today assume that God grades on the curve. They assume that wrongly that when we mess up, when we do things we know to be wrong, when we fail to love God, fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, shall we say, they assume that God, what? He's going to adjust the standards downward. So God's going to somehow make some sort of accommodation for the fact that nobody gets a hundred on everything. But a holy God, be clear on this, he cannot change the standards of right and wrong just to somehow let you pass the test. Even the most conscientious religious person is going to break God's laws. Just like today in baseball, I'm not a big baseball fan, but guess what? The best hitter in baseball, does he get anywhere close to a thousand? No, the best one gets maybe in the 300s. One, every, one, of every three pitch, one of every three times up at bat, he does well and somehow gets on base. The point here is, only Jesus lived a perfect life, a perfect righteous life, and therefore if your attempts to somehow be right with God means you're going to keep the rules, guess what? You're going to fail. Now, a third reason that Paul listed for missing out on being saved is that some people operate with a faulty assumption. They assume wrongly that in order to be saved, a person has to do something, as one particular politician says, huge. You have to do something epic. And if you see in the text there, he talks about going up to heaven or going down into the depths. Some people think that I've got to, to do something in pursuing salvation. It, it's so difficult, I just give up. It's way beyond me. I can't pull off something heroic. I can't pull off something that's super radical that's required of me. And so some people think, ah, the need, they need to somehow change themselves before God. They think that somehow... Unless I make myself better, reinvent myself, unless I come up with a new and improved person, then God will never accept me. Therefore, I'm not even going to try. 
They are of the belief that only people who measure up, only the people who have the highest level of moral performance, these are the ones who will finally attain the citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. That's wrong. That's a wrong assumption. As long as we operate with incorrect assumptions, with incorrect understandings about God's character and God's standards, then guess what? We're going to miss out on gaining the greatest treasure in the world, of being completely forgiven of our sins and being considered counted righteous by God, fully accepted and fully approved by God through the gospel. So as I've thought about how Paul is trying to explain how I mean, so many people just miss out on this, have unclaimed riches that they're just not seeking at all. I think to myself, why aren't they? And one of the things is, my friend, is because they need to know the truth. And so if you understand this text, I'm not going into it this morning, but I'm just going to make the general application here, looking at verses 13, 14, 15. Paul says the implication of the fact that they were ignorant means somebody needs to tell them the truth. Somebody needs to inform them. Do you know that this is yours if it's yours for the taking? It's yours if you will come and and believe upon the gospel? If you knew somebody had a million dollars in unclaimed funds in the state of New York controller's office and you did nothing to tell them about it and they died a pauper and didn't have enough funds to even take care of themselves, even their physical needs, what a tragedy that would be. So we're reminded here, we have a privilege, we have a blessing, we have a a mandate from Christ to be those who will speak the truth, help clarify the faulty way of thinking and believing and assuming so that they would know there is indeed incredible riches awaiting them in the gospel. That leads me now to my second point, and I want us to consider what must one do to be saved? What must one do to be saved? Paul cites in this text in Romans 10, a text from Old Testament, uh, familiar territory in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 30. He's trying to demonstrate to his Jewish readers that their faulty way of thinking is at odds with God's gospel. The truth of the gospel isn't hard to understand, Paul tries to tell them. It's not complicated. It's available to those who are indeed willing to to, uh, claim it. He says it's not some sort of complicated pilgrimage where you search for it. I I, I saw a show not too long ago on Frontline, in which it went around in different religions around the world, talked about these people making pilgrimages and having to make these long tours and trips and do all these things. And I'm thinking, oh, man, it's so complicated. It, It just was sad to see them all doing these, having to go out of town, having to wear certain clothes, having to buy certain food, having to uh, sit here and meditate and ring the bell 16 times, whatever they had to do. He says, no, no, it's not like that. It's straightforward. It's very simple. It's within your grasp, he says. Since Jesus is the one who provides us with what we need, that is righteousness, we need to focus on transferring our trust from ourselves and our own efforts to trusting in Jesus. Look at verse 8. He says, look, I'm here to declare to you a word of faith. That's what we're preaching about. That's what we're declaring to you. It's about faith. Not faith in faith, but trusting Jesus Christ. And it's just the opposite of some complicated system here. 
When I think of complicated things, think of something that's impossible to understand. I would suggest to you that one of those, in my mind, is the United States tax laws. The tax code, to me, is gibberish. It is beyond my ability to comprehend and understand it. And every dime that I pay my accountant to do my taxes is worth it to keep my sanity what's left of it. We're not talking about something complicated here, like the tax code. Paul boils it down here, and he's going to give us very clearly what is the response that we must make in order to become a Christian. Two words, confess and believe. Do you see that in the text? Confess and believe. Verse 9, one is outward, one is internal. They are joined together, if you notice this. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, and with the mouth a person confesses, resulting in salvation. So what Paul says is, listen, first of all, there must be a heart-level response to Jesus Christ. He says you must believe in your hearts. Now, he says that's got to be something other than just believing in your mind. It, it, it's got to be more than just giving mental assent to some facts about the person of Jesus or to the fact that Jesus actually did some things. He actually died on a cross. It's more than just believing facts. You say, well, why does it have to be that way? Can't that be true? No, because if you look in James chapter 2, James describes that there is such a thing as demonic faith, the faith of demons. That is an intellectual kind of assent with their mind. You say, what are you talking about? Well, it says in James 2 that demons believe a lot of orthodox doctrine about Jesus. They have no problem affirming the uh, incarnation of Jesus Christ. They have no problem affirming the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. They have no problem affirming that Jesus died on the cross. They have no problem affirming Jesus rose from the dead. They can affirm all that stuff. They know it's true. They saw it and, and witnessed it. But in James 2, verse 19, they affirm that there's only one God. He says, okay, that's good. He says, actually, they also affirm and believe in their minds that there's a future day of judgment, and they're afraid of that. They tremble at the thought of being judged one day. Now, does that mean they're saved? Surely you don't think it does. They're demons. And so James says here, just because you believe all the right facts, it means you don't have true saving faith. Heart faith is different. Heart faith is not merely concurring with facts. It involves placing the full weight of your hope, the full confidence of your soul, your person, all that you are, you place all of that in Jesus and what he did to rescue sinners. Now notice what he says here in terms of the, what we have to believe. It's believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's essential. And why is that so essential? He could have put a lot of things in the blank there. Believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross or whatever. Jesus was sent from God. No, he says that, you, that, Jesus, that God raised him from the dead. What is it about the resurrection that sets Jesus apart from all others? Well, that's just it. 
because of the resurrection, everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did, and everything that God testified about Jesus as to what he accomplished on the cross and in his life was proven and verified as true in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus, therefore, confirmed, God confirmed the identity of Jesus in his resurrection. He is, yes, God the incarnate. He is the righteous one. But he did not die because of his own sins. Jesus laid down his life, his sinless life, as a substitute for sinners. And that's why God raised Jesus from the dead to verify that what he did during his life and on the cross was completely adequate and sufficient to save sinners like you and me. And the Jesus who died on the cross is the same Jesus who was raised from the dead, and he has now been given the authority of all power, authority. He is the highest position of, uh, of, of, um, of glory in all the world. He is Savior and Lord. So we say truing, truly, sorry, true saving faith involves fully trusting in Jesus, who alone is sufficient as God's gift to provide, to make sinners right with God. God has provided only one way for sinners to be made right with Him. It's not by trying harder. It's not by doing better. It's not by earning merit through good works, but only by fully trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I should say it differently. In the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel calls everyone to cast ourselves fully on Jesus to save us from the penalty of sin and to bestow upon us his perfect righteousness. Titus chapter 3, we read that God saves sinners not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy. And so I have a quote, I think, in your notes there, or maybe this quote's not in your notes, at least one of these is. The gospel is that we are saved through what Christ does and not by what we do or by what we are. Tim Keller. And then Jay Adams, that biblical counselor, puts it this way. The gospel is not good works to perform, but it's good news to be believed. At some point, you have to say, this good news is so true, I'm going to act on it. Now, I know I've told this many times, and I'm going to keep saying it because this is part of my story, but in October of 2015, I suffered a massive ripping on the inside of my aorta, aorta that comes down from my heart and goes down this part of my body. No warning, no clue was going to happen Sunday morning in a, in a hotel workout room. I thought I was going to die, and I could have died. But God preserved me, and eventually I ended up meeting a surgeon, a vascular surgeon here, Dr. Tassiopoulos. He is an excellent doctor. I recommend him to you. But he said, listen, I've looked at your scans, and you need to have a stent put into this ripping of, of your aorta in order to keep it open, make sure that blood flows properly, and we don't create any uh, false channels. Now, I could have said to him, okay. Let's do it. I believe you can do it. But there has to come a point where what? Where you say, okay, I'm coming to the hospital 
I'm submitting to you, and I am completely out of it, and I entrust my life in your hands, and go ahead and fix what's wrong, because I can't do it myself. You can sit there and think all you want about hoping it gets better, but here is, comes a point where faith says, I have to surrender to it, I have to completely take action upon what I know to be true, and because I desperately need Jesus, you have to come to him and fully trust him. Now notice that that faith in Jesus who is God raised from the dead also needs to be what? Manifested somehow publicly. Because what always accompanies true saving faith? It is the confession of Jesus as Lord. What we say, the Bible says, reveals what's in our heart. So, if, we, if our heart is fully trusting in Christ alone as the only one who can successfully complete the payment of my sin, and if it is indeed His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead is what I'm hoping in, then I must make known what my heart faith is really relying on and confess Jesus as Lord with my mouth. So here's a key point. You cannot separate faith in Jesus as Savior from faith in Jesus as Lord. Those two things come together and are one and the same. Now that's controversial in some parts of evangelicalism, but the term here, Lord, is a term that clearly would have meant a lot to the people who are reading this because living in Rome, they knew a lot about the Roman emperor. And the Caesar there, or the, or the Roman emperor, would have demanded that people call him Lord. That was required of everybody. And Lord there does not mean necessarily a divine being, although some of these emperors assume they might have been divine beings, but it means someone with supreme authority. It is the one who, has, who is the sovereign ruler over that kingdom. It is the person who is the absolute master, who has the right to demand obedience from those who are under his reign. So one does not come to Jesus Christ merely to remove from oneself the threat of eternal damnation in order to somehow live in this world and in this life any way you please and to live like the devil. That's not thought of here at all. To have no concern for holy living, to have no intent to surrender to the teaching and calling of Jesus, but to somehow confess Him as your Savior are two opposite concepts and two opposite realities. So we must confess Jesus as Lord because that signifies outwardly what is inwardly true. Jesus is my supreme Lord. Jesus is my Master. And I now am giving my full and complete allegiance to Him as the sovereign ruler of my life. Some people wrongly assume that you can come to Christ early on in life. And so they have a decision that they've made for Jesus. And at that early part in life, they say, I want Jesus to be my Savior, to save me from my sins. But later in life, after many, many years of sowing the wild oats of all sorts of dishonorable and things that are uh, displeasing to Christ, then later on in life, they surrender to Christ as Lord. But my friend, both heart faith and confessing Jesus as Lord are required to be saved. They are inextricably linked together. And so, 
as we have a baptismal service here in just moments from now, I want to be very clear that a baptism isn't going to save anybody. Baptism is an act of obedience. Any follower of Jesus who has heart faith in Jesus is commanded to believe and then be baptized, Acts chapter 2. And when we're baptized, we are basically, again, having a public opportunity to confess Jesus as Lord, and we're saying, I surrender my time, my money, my talents, my loyalties, my dreams, my whole pursuits in life. I, I am uh, surrendering myself to Jesus as Lord. And therefore, in the waters of baptism, I'm making that clear that that is my intent. Jesus insists his followers confess him before men. We read in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus also said in Luke 12, Everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man shall confess him also before the angels. So my question is, have you believed in your heart? that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead? Have you confessed with your mouth publicly that Jesus is Lord? Only if you respond in heart-level belief will you be granted Jesus' righteousness and the privilege of full access to God, our Heavenly Father. And if you respond, only if you respond with public confession of Jesus' Lordship will you bear witness to saving faith that delivers you from the penalty of your sins. Today is a day to call all of us to make that response. That's the only way to claim the incredible riches of salvation, of righteousness we gain, and of not getting what we deserve, of being delivered from our condemnation. It's to be found in Christ. Very quickly, let me then turn to my last point here, very brief here in verses 11 and 12 and 13. Also, verse 4, answering the question, who can be saved? And I was just so struck by the pronouns that Paul uses here in this text. Look at verse 4. He says, everyone, everyone who believes. Verse 11, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse, and then uh, verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord quoting from Joel chapter 2, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now you say, well, some things sound too good to be true. I'm a skeptic. And some people might say, well, I don't know. This sounds too incredible of a gift to be received that simply. But notice what the scripture says. Whoever means whoever. One of my sons is working in the Boston area as a financial analyst, trying to stay, at work, stay awake at work now with a newborn son. And uh, he works for a real estate investment firm. I've had him try to explain to me what he does three or four times. I think I understand some of it. But this particular company he works for, I'm told, has an incredible track record as an investment firm, real estate investment firm. They were one of the only, if not very, very few, investment firms with, involved in real estate 
that actually made a profit in the year 2008. If you remember, 2008 was when the whole real estate market crashed. And they made a profit. So this is a good company. And however, their investment opportunities are available not to little peons like me who have a small chump change to invest in this particular endeavor. You've got to have hundreds of millions of dollars to sit down at the table and talk to them about investing in these kinds of investments. In other words, the vast majority of us, what? We can't avail ourselves of that. But notice what the text is saying here. Salvation in Jesus Christ. When we're talking about the incredible riches and treasures to be found in Christ, it's offered to all. Not just to good people. Not just to good-looking people. Not just to people who have a long resume of doing good deeds. Not to well-connected people. Just the people who are scandal-free, as if that's going to somehow qualify. No, no. The offer of salvation in Christ is freely offered to you and to me, people who are imperfect, people who are not batting 100%. Just as we are, we can come to Christ. One of the final points I want to make here in this text, look at verse 12. Jesus is the same Lord over all. Notice that there are not two ways of salvation. There is not a means of salvation for Jews, and there's not a means of salvation for Gentiles, non-Jews, but there's no distinction. Jesus is Lord over all. That means everyone is called to bend their knee before Jesus Christ, and to make the verbal confession that He is Lord, there is only one way to be saved. It is in personal heart, faith to Jesus Christ, and then those who will confess Him as Lord, because there is only one Lord and one Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible riches that are available in Christ. Unclaimed riches by so many, sadly enough. But Lord, to those of us who have claimed them, Lord, how blessed we are. All of our boasting today, Lord, is in our Lord Jesus Christ. All of the things that we have to celebrate His riches is because You've dealt with us in grace and mercy in Christ. We thank You that You don't wait till people get their act together before You will consider granting them adopted into your family. We thank you that, Lord, you take us as we are and you point us to the only one qualified to pay the debt on our behalf, and that is Jesus, the sinless one. And I pray, Lord, today as we demonstrate and, and, and portray the wonders of the gospel, even through the baptism, we pray, the Lord, every person who's here today, if they've never come to Christ, that today they would understand that they have unclaimed riches available to them if they will just bend their knee and come on God's terms, on Christ's terms, and confess Him as Lord and trust Him in their heart to be their Savior and the one who was raised from the dead to verify what He did on the cross. Lord, work in the hearts of all of us, we pray today. Fill us with a zeal to make the gospel known 
and fill us with a zeal to declare your glory both now and forevermore, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.